Hi, I'm Dr. James Ahrens, the ADHD author and veterinarian. Welcome to Podcast 28, Zoo Veterinarian. In the fall of 1986, I received a call from Alan Metzler, director of our local zoo. He was looking for a new veterinarian to help with the medical well-being of the zoo's animals. Bringing him from the San Diego Zoo, the city of Atascadero hired Allen to upgrade their small zoo. The ultimate goal was to have it accredited with the AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Allen needed to improve much of the physical plant and to have a more comprehensive medical oversight in place. Once accredited, we could qualify for new areas of funding and be allowed to trade animals with other zoos. Here's Joe Gelia with the story of a gorilla escapee. There was a large male gorilla escaped from the zoo up to East Vassarboro. The keeper come around in the morning and noticed that the, the bars to that cage had been bent and gnarled and that gorilla had escaped. So he went on up to the curator and he said, Mr. Curator, we lost us a large male gorilla last night, and I think you should put out an all-points bulletin on him. And the curator said, No, I don't believe that's necessary. An animal that large can't escape attention for too long. Well, sure enough, a few hours later, the phone rang. Are you the curator? Hey, are. Well, there's a large hairy beast atop one of my trees, and I thought he might belong to you. Hey, are. We'll come on down to get him. Well, the curator loaded up his truck, and when he got to that lady's house, he unloaded his pickover truck, and he had himself a short piece of chain, a shotgun, and a bulldog. He said, now, Letty, I'm going to need your help to get this gorilla out of that tree. Now, I'm going to climb that tree and shake it very hard. And when I do, that gorilla's going to fall out on the ground. And when he does, this bulldog has been trained to run up and grab him by his pads and <laughs> hold him till I can climb down the tree and chain him up. <laughs> well, all right, said Letty, and the curator started climbing. He got a good half or two-thirds the way up that tree when the woman yelled out, Hey, mister, what's the shotgun for? The curator stopped and said, Well, if that gorilla should happen to shake me out of the tree instead, you pick up the shotgun and shoot the bulldog. <laughs> Chapter 35 Zoo Veterinarian About once a week, veterinarian Jim Ahrens takes a walk on the wild side. Tigers, jaguars, monkeys, and pythons become his patients, a far cry from his usual clientele of dogs, cats, and horses. 
Aaron's is the official veterinarian for the Charles Paddock Zoo in Atascadero. Like Noah and his Ark of Exotic Animals, Aaron's and Zoo Director Alan Metzler oversee the health and care of the zoo's 120 animals. North County Tribune, March 26, 1987 In the fall of 1986, I received a call from Alan Metzler, director of our local zoo. He was looking for a new veterinarian to help with the medical well-being of the zoo's animals. Bringing him from the San Diego Zoo, the city of Atascadero hired Allen to upgrade their small zoo. The ultimate goal was to have it accredited by the AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. He needed to improve much of the physical plant and to have a more comprehensive medical oversight of the place. Once accredited, we would qualify for new areas of funding and be allowed to trade animals with other zoos. After agreeing to the offer, I borrowed a book by Dr. Murray Fowler titled Zoo and Wild Animal Medicine. Teaching exotic animal medicine at UC Davis for years, Dr. Fowler was a veterinary icon, establishing the first zoo medicine program in the world at UC Davis in 1967. When I was attending school, I had little interest in learning the medicine needs to care for the big and small creepy crawlies. Now I needed to expand my medical repertoire into this new world of furry, feathered, and scaly creatures. I outlined a yearly vaccination and worming protocol, and I gained access to the dart blowgun they used. It was a blowpipe with special feathered darts, modified syringes, that could deliver an injection of drugs from afar. With Alan's help, I developed techniques to be used for simple procedures. I also visited other zoos when Mary and I traveled to visit friends and relatives. This way, the trip became a tax write-off, another bonus of my independent study methods. I even managed to write off our wedding trip. I spent a day with a vet at the Houston Zoo and spent another day with a vet at the St. Paul Zoo. Although more extensive than our zoo, the techniques were the same. I became comfortable evaluating the zoo animals in their bedrooms behind their public displays. Additionally, I enrolled in exotic animal medicine courses whenever I went for a continuing education. The dart blowgun became my most useful tool. The dart syringes come in various sizes to allow different amounts of medicines. They have a front chamber loaded with the vaccine, the medicine, or the anesthetic. The back chamber is pressurized to inject the drug when it penetrates the skin. The tips of the needles that penetrate the hide are sharpened metal hollow needles with side ports. Regular hypodermic needles are hollow metal tubes with end ports. The darts need to have side ports because the small but tight rubber sleeve covers these ports, ensuring the medication doesn't leak out of the pressurized syringe until the dart penetrates the skin. When it enters, the rubber sleeve is pushed backward, freeing the pressurized medicines from the now open ports. I practiced blowing empty darts through the tube at a target and became more accurate. The first time I used the dart gun was for several vaccinations. Another time, Alan called me out because two serval cats the size of ocelots escaped their enclosure. Luckily, they realized they were in unfamiliar territory and took to sunning themselves at the top of their cage. We found the escapees leisurely stretched out 20 feet above us, as if they hadn't a care in the world. Loading a dart, I grabbed the blowgun with both hands, brought it to my lips, and exhaled sharply, sending the dart flying off to one of the cats. Psst! It was a direct hit. That was great, Doc, Alan exclaimed exuberantly, slapping my back, excited as all get out as if I was Babe Ruth hitting his millionth ball. I'd already prepared a second dart, quickly loading this one. I puffed again. Another direct hit. After a few minutes, the cats became sedated, and we returned them to their enclosure. The quick and direct immobilization impressed Alan and gave me lifelong bragging rights. 
Another time, Alan and a helper brought a large plastic garbage can into the office and pulled out an eight-foot python. The python lacerated itself on a metal edge as it tried to escape by slithering out of its enclosure through a metal vent. I tranquilized the snake while Alan and Tom held the lacerated area up to my view. As the trank began to wear off toward the end of the procedure, the python began to rotate slowly. Even with two men holding him, I had to continually readjust my hands and line of vision to sew the laceration closed. Kylie the coyote developed a wound on his leg. He wouldn't leave it alone, making it worse every time he licked it. I arranged to keep him in my office for a week with a bucket on his head to stop him from licking the wound. It was better hiding the scrawny coyote with a bucket on his head at the vet office than being noticed and pointed at and complained back at the zoo. In March 1987, Alan called me to place a birth control implant in Sasha, the female Bengal tiger. The implant dispensed a birth control drug to prevent the cat from entering her usual estrel cycle and stopping her from going into heat for two years. Zoos all over the world already had too many Bengal tigers. Many different subspecies were interbreeding, resulting in a dilution of the original genetics. New cubs became a maintenance liability, costing the zoo money to feed and grow tigers not wanted anywhere else. We decided to operate next week. Tuesday, I drove to the zoo after lunch. Alan showed me the implant. It was a capsule about three inches long and three quarters inch wide, made of silicone, and impregnated with hormones. Sasha was already locked in her bedroom. Alan approached her first, made sure things were set, then called me in. As I entered the back of the exhibit, the outside light diminished and the air stilled. The entire bedroom reeked of cat piss. The tiger was in her bedroom, separated from us humans, by a heavy wire mesh. She knew something was different and was complaining mightily. I loaded the dart and put it into the blowgun. The moment she saw me, Sasha retreated to the far corner of her cage, sitting on her butt, her head up, growling a complaint about my presence. When she changed position, I blew the dart into her flank. Letting out a snarl, she bit the thing and tore it from her hide, pulling it free from her skin. I saw the dart spill into her, so I knew the medicine emptied inside. But her adrenaline was so high she was still acting normal and needed more. Over the next 45 minutes, I blew two more darts into her to deepen her into the desired sedation level. Once Sasha was down and quiet, we opened the gate, put her on a stretcher, and carried her to a place with better lighting. Using my straight-edged razor blade, I removed the fur along her jugular furrow. Like the horse, the furrow is in the lower part of the neck, offering easy access to the jugular vein. I inserted a large catheter to give her instant sedation if needed. With the three initial injections using the darts, the drug went in the muscles. This meant there was a time lag and a dilution of the drug as it was absorbed into the bloodstream before it made its way to the brain for effect. This catheter offered me better control as the venous entrance is a lot safer than intramuscular injection and the level of sedation is more easily controlled. With Sasha's anesthesia at the right level, I used my straight edge razor to remove her fur higher up on the neck where her implant was going to go. Disinfecting the skin with an antiseptic, I used my surgical blade to open an incision in her skin. Lifting the skin edges with forceps, I dissected it into the underlying fat layer. After opening a cavity between the muscle layers, I placed the silicone implant into the pocket, threw in a couple of deep sutures to keep the thing in place, and then sutured the skin close. The procedure took 40 minutes. Once done, we waited while Sasha recovered from the anesthetic. This is the time of the proceedings 
where the focus falls a little. The cleanup starts, and we begin to relax. I relax, too, feeling right about the implant surgery. Squatting down at Sasha's head, I explore the cat's body, running my hand through her thick coat, grabbing her ears, checking her eyes for a palpable reflex. When an animal is beginning to wake from deep sedation, the brain will squeeze the eyelids tighter when a finger touches them. Sasha had a mild palpable reflex. She was starting to wake up just a little. We still had some time before she would be put away in her bedroom. Her mouth was partly open, and I noticed one of her upper right molars was blackened and looked caveted. I needed to check this out. Just as I would on a dog or cat, I went to explore the questionable tooth with my left hand. Reaching inside the mouth, I pulled the cat's tongue with my right hand. But this caused the jaws to reflexively close, and when a 300-pound cat's mouth closes on a small thumb, there is no way to stop the scissor-like bite from completing its closure. Sasha bit my thumb off. As the jaws opened back up, I pulled my mangled hand toward me. The last articulation of my thumb was cut wide open. It wasn't all the way off. It was still hanging on by a tissue tag on the front, but it was completely disjointed, flipped upside down, and dangling obscenely when I moved my hand. That one little piece of skin was keeping it attached. I informed the team it was time to stop the procedure. I needed to go to the hospital. On the way there, I flipped the awkwardly angled digit into its original position. I felt better holding it in the correct spot. Once in the emergency room, I asked the nurse to call Mary. They took an x-ray and called a surgeon. Mary arrived in a half hour. I was agitated, pacing the room back and forth, so a nurse gave me an injection to slow me down and keep me in the bed. The surgeon came in. He was called from home and was still wearing a brown leather jacket. He appeared to be a World War II airplane pilot. He introduced himself to Mary and me as a hand specialist. Once he left the room, Mary remarked the staff probably makes up these specialties just to help patients feel better. Yesterday, he had come in to help someone as a foot specialist. But she was wrong. He had the proper credentials to perform the meticulous surgery which lay ahead. The surgeon returned San's jacket, checked out the x-ray, and told me to leave the thumb alone. I was inhibiting any circulation left by pushing too hard trying to keep it in normal position. I changed into the latest style of hospital clothing, and they put a catheter in my arm. As the pre-op sedation started to work, I sank deeper into the bed. They transferred me to a gurney and wheeled me into the surgical suite, where I came together with the anesthesiologist and the hand surgeon. Another table was wheeled up. It had a surgical microscope sitting on top. The anesthesiologist added more meds to my catheter until I could no longer feel or move my arm. I was still awake as the operation began. The first part of the process was soft tissue reconstruction. The surgeon first reattached some blood vessels because without nourishment and oxygen, any further repair was doomed to fail. This was real microscopic surgery. The doc peered through a binocular microscope, pointing at my thumb, to carefully sew things together using sutures the size of a hair. Once the vessels were sutured, the fellow stitched the soft tissue components together. They were mainly ligaments, he said. That made sense to me. Ligaments are the puppet strings attaching one bone to another one. I talked with my fellows during this time, yammering on about myself. I don't recall asking many questions about my two new best friends in the world. I just kept talking and talking. After two hours into the surgery, the nurse came in to tell me Mary was going home. I asked the nurse to let Mary know I love her. Soon afterward, the fellows must have decided I was talking too much, and I lost consciousness as the anesthesiologist added more drugs to my sleeping cocktail. It was time to drive a stainless steel pin through my thumb to make the repair job stay together. 
This part hurts like hell, and they needed me out. I awoke the next morning with my entire left arm below the elbow, hidden in a cumbersome bandage that extended to the top of my thumb. But I could see the tips of my four fingers. I wiggled them, and they waved back. I hoped my thumb would be doing that soon, too. I spent all day and night Wednesday recovering. By Thursday, I was tired of lying in bed. I called Mary and arranged for her to bring me a computer and my printer so I could get some work done. I was anticipating I would be released Friday, but it was not to be. I started to run a fever. I had gotten cat bite fever from a tiger. The bacterium, Pastorella multicida, infected the wound and was multiplying in my bloodstream. The surgeon called up an infectious disease specialist, and they outlined a treatment plan where I was to be given an antibiotic in the vein every eight hours. It was Friday, and I was under the weather because of the 104-degree fever, but by Saturday I was ready to go, insisting the nurse call the surgeon for my release. Every time I saw a nurse, I asked if they had talked to the doctor. When told the doctor was out of town, I resigned myself to looking out of freedom through a 4 by 4 window. Out of town in Templeton can mean a lot of things. Templeton is only a small town about 7 square miles, so a doctor may have been lurking just outside the city limits. Nonetheless, I resigned myself to my jail cell. When Monday morning came, a pretty nurse brought a handful of paraphernalia and sat it on the table next to my bed. She started tapping and feeling around my upper arm, but needed a better vantage point. She pulled her nurse dress up a bit, exposing more of her white stockings. Then she climbed onto the bed with me and manipulated my arm more. Evidently, she still wasn't happy with her point of view, and she straddled me. Positioning my arm a certain way, she unsheathed a large catheter, placing it high up on my arm. I think it looked bigger because she was still sitting on top of me, and the catheter was right at eye level. Next, she put tape around it to keep it in place. I remember thinking I was glad she was so pretty. Florence, my new nickname for her, came back with a small bag of sterile IV solution and a vial containing an orange-yellow powdery antibiotic, appearing very similar to Naxel, a cephalosporin antibiotic I used for cattle when they had pneumonia. She showed me how to reconstitute the drug, a thing I'd already done hundreds of times. She injected it into the bag of fluids and started an IV drip through my new, sturdier catheter. As we watched the antibiotic solution drip into me, she asked if I felt comfortable doing this procedure at home. I told her I didn't see any problem with this because I do it all the time at my clinic. So they trusted another doctor to doctor himself the right way, and, shortly after, I was released from Twin City Hospital. Well, they were somewhat correct. Once I came home, I was diligent about my intravenous therapy. Every eight hours at the kitchen table, I made up another bag of antibiotic, hung it from my kitchen table lamp, and hooked the IV set to my catheter. I was tethered to the table for 30 minutes and did this religiously about four times before I began wondering how I could speed up the process. An hour four times a day was keeping me from my schedule. I went out to my vet truck and brought back a large 60cc syringe. The hospital bag of fluids contained 250 milliliters of antibiotic solution, so that I could pull that solution out of the bag into four syringes. With four full syringes, I was able to push the liquid into my vein at a faster rate, rather than waiting for the slow drip over the next 60 minutes. It saved me hours of downtime. After making sure I didn't feel woozy or nauseous from the increased rate of injection, I felt this was the best way to finish off the meds over the next four days. I called the office and let them know I was ready to come back to work. For some unfathomable reason, I was scheduled to spay a large dog in Paso on Wednesday. How could I do surgery with my left hand 
when it won't fit into a surgical glove, I wondered. Then I remembered I had sterilized sleeves made up for performing uterine cultures and biopsies on mares. The sterile sleeve fits over the bandage, and I was able to pull a regular surgical glove onto my right hand using the four exposed fingers from my left. The surgery was a bit more complicated because I had to relearn how to tie sutures using only the fingers of my left hand without the thumb. Equine repo work was not a problem because I did all of my palpations and ultrasound scans with my right hand. I was ready to go, I felt. As the weeks went by, the bandage was removed and replaced. The surgeon removed a dead layer of skin from the top part of the thumb, and later the pin was slid out. I was sent to a physical rehabilitation clinic to regain mobility in the thumb. But the lovely young woman pushing back and forth on my finger caused more pain than I could stand. So I allowed the thumb to scar in as an entire unit. I could still do surgeries and most of the previous activities I had done earlier, so I opted out of the prolonged, tedious, and painful convalescence that potentially lay in front of me. Thank you for the narration, Brian. I found a song that fits with my excitement working at the zoo, a surreal experience I never imagined I would be part of. dragon lived by the sea. He frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanalee. Little Jackie Paper loved that rascal Puff. Brought him strings and sealing wax and other fancy stuff. Oh, Puff the magic dragon lived by the sea. And frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Holly. Puff the magic dragon lived by the sea. And frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Holly. Together they would travel on a boat with billowed sail. Jackie kept the lookout perched on Puff's gigantic tail. Noble kings and princes would bow whene'er they came. Pirate ships would lower their flags when Puff roared out his name. Oh, Puff the magic dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hollerlee. Puff the magic dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanalee. The dragon lives forever, but not so little boys. Painted rings and giant's wings make way for other toys. One gray night it happened, Jackie Paper came no more. Puff that mighty dragon ceased his fearless roar. His head was bent in sorrow. Green scales fell like rain. Puff no longer went to play along the cherry lane. Without his lifelong friend, Puff could not be brave. Puff that mighty dragon sadly slipped into his cave. Oh, Puff! The magic dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanalee. Puff the magic dragon 
sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Honolulu. Thank you all for listening. You can follow the story on my blog, jeadvm.com. Once on my blog's front page, go to the menu, pick My Books, and click on Fear of Failure. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book or an e-book, as well as an 11-disc audiobook set, or can be downloaded from the audiobook site Spotify. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com. Thank you.